Tonight we're going to begin our study of Genesis 3, and we'll probably run two nights in this study. Genesis chapter 3 is one of the critical chapters in the Bible. That's true not only Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, but it's also true of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, one of the critical passages in all the Bible is um, Genesis chapter 3 because it tells us the origin of, of sin in the human race. Uh, I think it was G. Campbell Morgan that outlined the book of Genesis by three words. Generation, degeneration, regeneration. In a certain sense, we could say that's the outline of the whole Bible. We have generation in Genesis 1 and 2. We have degeneration in Genesis chapter 3. And we have regeneration in Genesis chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 22. And the whole thesis of Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man into sin. And Genesis chapter 3 is exceedingly important. It's important for two or three reasons. It'll be obvious as we study. But uh, uh, above all else, Genesis chapter 3 is important because it tells us the origin of sin in the human race. I suppose the deepest question the philosophy wrestles with is the question of sin. And Genesis chapter 3 is the only reliable record of how sin began in the human race. Genesis chapter 3 records the beginning of, uh, of all other evil things. You get tired at night, that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. You get out of sorts with your wife or husband or mother or father or children, that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the beginning of the alienation of the human race, not only from God, but from our fellow man. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the beginning of that alienation. We've been involved in three major wars in the last 60 years. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the origin of war and bloodshed. Someday they're going uh, to put you in a box and take you out to the cemetery and place you in the grave. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us the origin of death in the human race. Adam was not created subject to death. Had Adam not sinned, he would not have died. He would no doubt have been confirmed in the state of integrity. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us the beginning of death in the human race. Then, of course, Genesis chapter 3 is important because it tells us of the essential nature of sin. What is sin? Is sin an inhibition? Is sin a disability for which I'm not responsible? Is sin selfishness? Is sin, as the Christian scientist tells us, an illusion? Or is sin a violation of God's law and renders us guilty? Well, uh, I've already, uh, by implication, inference, indicated what Genesis 3 tells us. Genesis 3 tells us the essential nature of sin. That is that sin is a willful violation of the law of God, renders the man guilty. I don't suppose there's any more important chapter in all the Bible than Genesis chapter 3. A.W. Pink called Genesis chapter 3 the seed plot of the Bible. And I'm not going to, but I could last about six months on Genesis chapter 3. The whole story of man's sin is found in Genesis 3. The whole alienation between husband and wife is found in Genesis chapter 3. God's plan of redemption is found in Genesis chapter 3. The curse that fell upon man is found in Genesis chapter 3. 
the pain which a woman, a woman undergoes when she gives birth to a child, or the nine-month pregnancy, the pains associated with nine-month pregnancy, and the pain she suffers in Genesis, uh, in childbirth. All go back to Genesis chapter three. I'm, you, I suppose the ladies know here. If your poor mother had not fallen into sin, there'd be no pain in childbirth, no pain in the nine-month pregnancy. For all the men present here, had not our forefather Adam fallen into sin, we would not have to wrestle with the elements of nature to wrest from them our livelihood. You've been farming. You had to plant that crop three times. You would never have to done that if Genesis chapter 3 had not occurred. All the curse that falls upon human race traces itself back to Genesis chapter 3. Here is the origin of the sin. You know, one of the great problems that both theology and philosophy wrestle with is the problem of um, uh, sin or the problem of evil. The problem of sin or the problem of evil. How do we solve that problem? The atheist tells it we solve it by saying there is no God, and therefore since there is no God, there is no problem. The Christian scientist solves it, as do as all pantheism, and Christian science is a form of pantheism. Christian scientist solves it by saying that, that evil and sin do not really exist. There's no real evil and there's no real sin. And uh, since they uh, don't, I can't help but remember, uh, I told you the incident that I had when I was working for a, a company in, in uh, Pasadena and had association with a Christian scientist. I can't help but a young lad that had a similar association. His, uh, his father was sick and he met a lady that lived on the same street who was a Christian scientist. And she said to him, one day, how are you, Johnny? And he said, fine. How's your family? The boy said, well, my mother's okay, but my father is sick. She said to him, he's not sick. He just thinks he's sick. And about uh, three or four days later, she met him again. She said, Johnny, how is the family? And he said, well, uh, my father is worse. He's much more sick. And she said, he's not sick. He just thinks he's sick. She met him about a week later. She said, how is your father? Johnny with a dour face said, he thinks he's dead. <laughs> well, you know, that doesn't answer the problem of sin. And uh, uh, the idea that God is limited to God, has no control of this universe, doesn't answer at all. The Bible gives us only satisfactory uh, um, Solution to the problem of the origin of sin. I wonder if you'd stop just a minute, think, what would be your solution to the beginning of sin in the human race if you didn't have Genesis chapter 3? Would you want to say that God created this world a sinful world? I don't think so. Would you want to say that man is perfect and there is no sin? I don't think so. Well, now you're going to account for the origin, the beginning of sin in the human race. If we, didn't have to, if we didn't have Genesis 3, we'd have to write Genesis 3 because we'd have to account for the origin of sin, the human race. Now, before we start, may I lay down three basic facts, three basic biblical facts about sin in this universe. They run through all the Bible, but we ought to nail them down before we begin our study. They're not found on the outline. 
the three great biblical, basic biblical facts that we ought to nail down. The first one is this, that God is not the author, A-U-T-H-O-R. God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. God is not responsible for sin. God is not the chargeable cause of sin. We cannot impute sin to God. God is not the author of sin. Now you say, well, does anybody believe that? There are many people who believe that. And there have been philosophies that have been committed to that. Uh, and we have uh, you know, books like, uh, uh, like the Rubiot of Omer Khayyam. Uh, o thou who with pitfall with gin didst beset the path I was to wander in. That, that means essentially that God is responsible for sin. O thou, said Omar Khayyam in the Rubiot, O thou who with pitfall, pitfall is a little trap for birds, and a gin is a little trap for birds. O thou who with pitfall and with gin did beset the path I was to wander in. If I fall into sin, you're responsible. You trapped me in that. How many of us remember Ed Wynn and the Texaco? <laughs> you remember that? Edwin in the Texaco, when you date yourself a little, you do. See, Edwin was a fatalist. Edwin was a fatalist. I remember reading one time that he said he had, uh, I think, 10,000 volumes of jokes and humors in his shelf, and all jokes and humor could be reduced to eight basic standards. Edwin also was a fatalist. And he changed that little saying that we hear occasionally, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, comma, rough hew them how we may. Now that's God's providence. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, comma, rough hew them how we may, period. There's a divinity that shapes our end. That means our final goal and destiny. Rough hew them, no matter how much of a botch we may make of them. There's a kind providence that works in our lives as Christians and shapes our end well and wisely. Now, Edwin was a fatalist. He didn't believe in the God of the Bible. So he moved the comma over one word. There's a divinity that shapes our ends rough, comma. Hew them how we may. See, and there's all the world difference between those two. There's a divinity that shapes our ends rough. God is against me. God is against me. There's a divinity that shapes our ends rough, comma. Hew them. How it, no matter what I try to do, the cards are stacked against me. Well, the first fact we have to lay down is that God is not the author of sin. God is not responsible for sin. Now, you know, the average man doesn't say that. You know what the average man says? Oh, the average kid says it. The average man says it. The average husband and wife says it. He said, no, God isn't, but uh, my circumstances are. If my circumstances weren't such, then I wouldn't be such. Or my environment is such, and if my environment wasn't such, then I wouldn't be such. Or my heredity is such, and if I didn't have this kind of heredity, then I wouldn't be such. But whenever I blame my environment or my circumstances or my heredity, I blame God, because God gave me my heredity and my environment, and my circumstances. And by blaming these, 
I indirectly blame God. God is not the author of sin. That's why in Genesis chapter 1, after every creative day, the Bible says, and God looked about what he saw, and it was what? And the second day it was good, and the last day when he looked on it, it was God is not the author of sin and evil in this universe or in my life. I'm chargeably responsible for my sin and failure. The second basic biblical fact about sin, number two, is that sin originated in heaven. Before it came down to earth, sin originated in heaven by a free act of Lucifer, now called Satan. Sin originated in heaven by a willful act of a free agent, Satan. Now, may I ask you to turn me to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15. 28, chapter 28, verse 15. Here is uh, one of the two most important verses in all the Bible on sin. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 28, let's begin at verse um, uh, 14. Now, God is addressing the king of Tyre, verse 12, but he's really addressing someone under the, under the picture of the king of Tyre. And he says, uh, Son of man, verse 12, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, send him. Thou, thus saith the Lord God. But when we read it, we recognize that this is not the historical king of Tyre. This is someone else whom he describes under the nomenclature of the king of Tyre. He says, verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now that's not the king of Tyre. Eden was gone when he came across the scene. He's referring here to Lucifer. He talks about his uh, precious soul as thy covering and so on down the the workmanship of thy timbrels and thy flutes is prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub. A cherub is an angel. Cherub is an angel. This refers to Lucifer. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down the midst of the stones of fire. Now here's the verse. Talking about Lucifer, now the devil. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. Now, I want you to look at that verse carefully. That's, uh, in some respects, the most important verse in all the Bible on the origin of sin in the universe. What does that tell us? It tells us three things. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity is found in thee. Now, three phrases there, the three clauses. What does that tell us about Lucifer, now called Satan? The great arch enemy of God. What does the second phrase tell us? He was created. He's not an eternal being. He's a created being. Lucifer is a great five-star general, but he's a created being. That's the same. That's one thing it tells us. He was created. Now, what does the first phrase tell us? When God created him, how did he create him? Perfect. So that God is not the author of sin. And then what does the third phrase tell us? Till iniquity is found where? In thee. 
So sin began in the heart of Satan. Sin began in the heart of Satan. Sin began by a free, willful act on the part of Satan, or Lucifer. And that's described in Isaiah chapter 14. We're not going to turn there. But the important thing I want to underscore here, well, three of them. First of all, that sin began up in heaven, didn't begin on earth. Sin came down to earth, but it began in heaven. Before Genesis 3 is Ezekiel 28, 15. Second, sin began by a willful act on the part of Lucifer. And then the third thing it underscores is that God isn't responsible for it. See? That verse tells us three things. Lucifer was created, the devil was created. Second, when he was created, he was created perfect. When he fell into sin, he fell by a free moral choice so that he is chargeable for his sin. He's responsible. And, and that needs to be nailed down. All right, the second thing. I said there were three basic facts. Uh, this is the third one. God is not the author, number one. Number two, sin began in heaven. The third fact is sin began on earth by a free act of a free moral agent, by a willful act of a free moral agent. Sin began on earth by a willful act of a free moral agent. Now, turn with me to a second important verse, and that's in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Job. Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Now here's the second port verse. See, I'm saying three things here. First thing I'm saying is that God is not the author. And that's James chapter 1, 15 to 17, and that's Genesis 1 and so on. Second thing is that sin began where? Began in heaven. And what is that verse? Ezekiel 28, 15. And that tells us three things, doesn't it, about sin beginning in, the, in heaven. Tells us that, um, tells us that Satan, first of all, Lucifer, who's no man, was created. Lucifer means light bearer, light bearer. Lucifer was created. He's not eternal. Second tells us that uh, when he was created, he was created what? Perfect. Perfect. Now, you know, that's a problem. That wasn't an echo, was it? <laughs> that's a problem. Created perfect. Now, I want you to respond. That's good. When Satan was created, he was created perfect. Perfect. Um, um, now, I, every once in a while, one of the students will ask me, how do you account for the fact that a man with a pure, holy nature, Adam, got involved in sin? There's no problem in my getting involved in sin. I have a sinful nature. I have the capability of responding to temptation. But Adam had no sinful nature. Therefore, how could Adam sin when he had no sinful nature with which to respond? Now, that's the hard problem. But the harder problem is, um, is how did Lucifer respond? Because with Satan, there was a sinful, no sinful nature, but there was an evil uh, temptation on the outside. 
was Adam, with Adam and Eve, there was, a, was no sinful nature, but at least there was an evil temptation on the outside. There was the bait. But with Lucifer, there was neither the bait nor an evil nature. How do we therefore account for the fall of Lucifer? Well, that's one of the mysteries of the Bible. We don't know how to account for it, except to say that the Bible teaches us three things. Satan was created. Number two, Ezekiel 28, 15, when he was created, he was created perfect with all of his appetites and inclinations inclined toward God. He wasn't created in neutral. He was created perfect, morally perfect, with all of his appetites inclined toward God. And third, when he fell, iniquity is found in thine heart. When he fell, he fell by a willful act of disobedience. All right, sin, God is not the author. Sin began in heaven, Ezekiel 28, 15. And third, sin began on earth by a willful act of a free moral agent. You know why I constantly stress that idea, willful? Because um, in our culture today, uh, with modern psychiatry and psychology and sociology, we're always trying to get everybody off the hook of responsibility. Well, as a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't. The Bible says to you and the Bible says to me, thou art the man. And with David, we say, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He sinned against God. He sinned with Bathsheba, but he sinned against God. Now, Ecclesiastes 7, 29. Ecclesiastes 7, 29. And that teaches us three things also. Now, there's, there is a, a summary of Genesis chapter 3. Romans 5.12 and Ecclesiastes 7.29 summarize Genesis 3. Now, what does Ecclesiastes 7.29 tell us? Well, let's read it. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Lo, this only have I found that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, that tells us three things also, doesn't it? Tells us, what does it tell us, first of all? That God made man what? Upright. When God created man, he created him perfect. Perfect. Sinless. Perfect. God made man upright. What's the second thing it tells us? They have sought out many what? Inventions. Now, that doesn't mean scientific inventions. That means ways to sin. And who's responsible for it in Ecclesiastes 7.29? Man is. You are. I am. They have sought out. That tells us that when sin started, it started by a willful act of disobedience. They have sought out many inventions. And what is the third thing that verse tells us, the first part of it? That we ought to do what? That we ought to what? <laughs> well, let me tell you what it is. That tells us, you listening? It tells us what about 99 out of 100 Christians don't know. That tells us it's important for us to find it out. It's important for us to know this. To know what? To know the doctrine of original sin. God, number one, God created man perfect. Number two, when he fell into sin, he fell by a willful, free moral act. And number three, this is something that I ought to watch. No. This only have I found. 
I discovered this. I found it out. Found out from the Bible and from, uh, from experience. All right, now let's go to Gen back to Genesis chapter 3 and begin our study. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and begin our study, having laid that background. Um, see that point B there? I've already covered the importance of three basic biblical facts in your outline. Now we come to C. Uh, Genesis 3 is history. It's not fable. Uh, it's not like Aesop's fable. It's not a myth. It's not a parable. Genesis 3 is solid history, and it's to be interpreted literally. That means there was a real Adam, and that means there was a real Eve, and that means there was a real serpent. And that means there was a real tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a real garment of fig leaves which Adam tempted to build for himself. And there was a real garment which God made for Adam and Eve. I interpret this literally. Now, there's no doubt that all these things were a picture or symbolic of something else, but behind the picture which they represent, there's the historical reality. A real Adam and a real Eve, a real temptation, a real serpent, a real snake, if you will, and a real demonic satanic agent behind that instrument, and a real fall. Now you say, well, what are you emphasizing that for? Well, the reason I'm emphasizing is because every major denomination is waxed by this thing. See? There's a quite a controversy here about six, seven years up in Nashville about a certain book that was published, and it was taken back because the man adopted the mythological approach to Genesis 1 to 11. The Presbyterians have gone to it, the Methodists have gone to it, the Baptists have gone to it, the Episcopalians have gone to it, and the, the Evangelicals have gone to it. This is a major, a major controversy today. How do I interpret it, Genesis 1 to 11? My answer is I interpret it literally and historically. I take it to be a real Adam and a real Eve and a real fall. And when a man asks me why, I answer because Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, did. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, did. If he did, then, then he, if he's God, then he speaks truth. And since I believe he's God and speaks truth, therefore I accept what he had to say. And I interpret it historically and literally. Now, let's look at two things that we can tonight, at least the first one. First of all, the temptation. Temptation. There's, first of all, the temptation. Then, secondly, there's the fall in verses 6 and 7. And then in verses 8 through 14, there's the interrogation, 8 through 13. And then, fourth, there's the judgment pronounced on the devil and on man and on woman, verses 14 to 19. And then, number five, there's that great uh, uh, act of Adam by which he calls his wife's name Eve. And then six, there are the garments that God made for Adam and Eve in verse 21, the first gospel sermon ever preached. And then last of all, there's the expulsion from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, 22 to 24. Now, I'd like to cover the first two tonight. The first two tonight. The first thing is the temptation itself. Now, let's read verses 1 to 5, the temptation itself. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the, uh, of the, fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, 
God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And then verse 6 and 7 tells us of the response of Adam and Eve and their taking the fruit. Now, verses 1 to 5 tell us of the temptation. want to look at four things here, just as I have it on the outline. First of all, the probation in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Now, we covered that last time, so I'm not going to cover it again. Second thing we want to look at is the tempter. The tempter. The tempter is... Uh, now, when we come to this, we have to distinguish two things. When we come to the tempter, we have to distinguish two things. We have to distinguish the agent and the instrument which that agent used. Now, who was the agent? Well, he's not mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. Every once in a while when I'm teaching the book of Genesis, I ask the students to write something on Genesis chapter 3, and I ask them, who was the tempter? Your observation, not interpretation, but from observation, who was the tempter? And invariably, almost invariably, they write down Satan. But that's not an observation because Satan is not mentioned in Genesis 3. The tempter in Genesis 3 is the serpent. Now, we know from the rest of the Bible, from John 8, from 2 Corinthians 11, from Revelation 12, 9, and from Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, that the real tempter was the devil himself. But he's not mentioned as such in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the question arises, why didn't Moses tell us that? Well, I suppose for two reasons. First of all, Moses was relating strictly what took place. Secondly, if Moses had introduced the devil into the scene per se and mentioned him by name, there might have been a tendency on our part to think that this relieved Adam and Eve of their guilt. So he didn't introduce the name of Satan. But we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, Revelation chapter uh, 20, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 11, that the devil is a real tempter. Now, let's took, look at two of those passages. First one, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's turn over there quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we're not going to have a lot of time to look for it. I'm going to turn there and, and read it, and then we'll have to move on to Revelation. Chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled or deceived Eve through his craftiness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, who is that serpent? Well, go down to verse uh, 13. But such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves in the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for, now what's the next word? Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He's identified with the serpent. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 12, quickly please. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out. That 
ancient serpent. Now he identifies him. That ancient serpent called the wise. And Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out in the earth. So there identifies the serpent as devil or Satan. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, great chain in his hand. And he laid on, hold on the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, bound him a thousand years. Now, who was the real agent behind this temptation? Satan, the devil. He was the real agent. He attempted, and the very thing he tried to get Eve to do, if you'll eat of the fruit of this tree, you'll be like God, is the very thing on which he failed. Five times in Isaiah chapter 14, the devil said, Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High five times. He failed. He sinned. He failed. He came down to this earth, and when he came to Eve, he, he tendered toward her the same thing, the same kind of bait which he had taken, which he, on which he fell. Not taken because there was no bait in heaven. On which he fell. That is, if you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will be like... God, knowing good and evil. He failed in heaven, and it failed down on earth. The serpent is Satan. The devil is the real one. Now, what about going back to Genesis chapter 3? What about, uh, what about this serpent that appeared to Eve? Well, I take it as a literal serpent. I take it to be a literal serpent. I take it to be a real serpent. Now, what form it took, we don't know. Did the serpent actually speak? Yes. We ought not to have any trouble with that modern ventriloquism. We know that Balaam's ass spoke, so we ought not to have any trouble with the serpent speaking here. Well, someone will say, well, why didn't Eve catch on? Well, you remember that Eve hadn't been created but a few days. How long between the creation of Eve and the temptation of Adam and Eve? Well, I don't know. The old fathers used to say that Adam and Eve were created in the morning and they were tempted in the afternoon. I don't know. But it wasn't long. And they do that because they, Adam did not know his wife, have any relationship with his wife, until Genesis chapter 4. And the ancient fathers supposed that that wasn't too long. And therefore, they put the temptation immediately after the creation. I don't know how long, but I don't suppose it was more than a week. And Eve didn't have much experience, little experience. What form did this serpent take? What form did the snake take? I don't know. I don't know. We know that his form was changed considerably. Um, old Adam Clark, the commentator, used to think that the serpent was a orangutan. <laughs> Why, I don't know. A good friend of mine who spoke it in town, because he comes from a culture which goes way back to dragons, Dr. Jim Graham, thinks that the tempter took the form of a dragon because that's in the Chinese lore and culture. I don't think so. We just simply don't know. Uh, it wasn't the creature, the snake that we think of today, but it had perhaps a similar form. I don't know. But I take it that, that it was a, a real serpent that the devil used it to seduce Eve. Now you say, well, why didn't he come to her directly? Because if he came to her directly, she would have run away. That's part of his deception. What did 2 Corinthians 11 say about the devil? He beguiled her. He seduced her. He deceived her. 
When Satan makes his first entrance on the human stage, he's deceived. He begins by an act of deception. In Revelation chapter 20, in his last act on the human stage after the millennium, he deceives the nation. And all the way through, the devil's major modus operandi is deception. So he came in the form of a serpent. He used an animal. Now, uh, you know, if you're going to use an animal, uh, you want to use a dog? <laughs> want to use a horse? What about an eagle? What about a canary? He used a serpent, see? And Eve, who had not much experience in this and probably didn't know that the animals were incapable of speech, at least didn't know that. Some men suggest they even had ability to speak. I don't think so. I don't think so. But she didn't know much about this. And so she was, she was um, deceived by the devil's use. Now, you say, well, is she excusable because she was deceived? No, no. No, she wasn't excusable because she shouldn't have listened. But the devil came to her in a seductive fashion. Number three, the third thing we see there is the tempted, Eve. Eve. Eve is tempted. Now, the question arises, ladies, why did the devil come to Eve? Why did he come to Adam? See? Well, I, I'm going to pass that by. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble here. Now, let me, let me suggest uh, three things. First reason, I think, why the devil came. And see, the devil is smart. The devil's smart. The devil's smarter than you. The devil's smarter than me. If the devil took our ACT, he'd make about a 35 or a 36. Now, he's not omniscient, but he's smart. And Ephesians chapter 6 says that he has a strategy. The Greek word strategeo is from the same word from which we get the word strategy. It's translated the wiles of the devil. He has a strategy. He's smart. Why did he come to the woman? First of all, because she had not heard that command of God direct, had she? She heard it secondhand. She didn't hear it direct. And you know from experience that when, a, when you get an order direct, it carries a little more weight than when you get it secondhand. Isn't that right? If you got two boys, three boys, uh, and I got two of them here tonight, and you, you know, you want them to come, you might send out one boy to get a second boy. And then you might hope that that second boy will show up sometime in the future. If you really need him, now you know what you do, don't you? You don't send a boy to get him. You go out and call him yourself. When they hear it directly, it counts a little more. Now, Eve hadn't heard it directly. She heard it through Adam. Therefore, perhaps it didn't carry the weight that it would have carried had she heard it like Adam heard it, directly from God. Secondly, Secondly, Eve didn't have as much experience as Adam. Who named all the animals? Adam or Eve? Adam. Who had experience with those animals? Adam or Eve? Who would know that the animals could not see? Adam, not Eve. She didn't have that experience, see? So she had less experience than that. Now, I suggest those two. The Bible suggests in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that a woman's nature is a little more susceptible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. That she's more sensitive in nature. Some men are more susceptible to certain kinds of temptations, and women are more susceptible to other kinds of temptations. A man is more susceptible to the temptation of money and sex. There are certain things to which a woman is susceptible. And here perhaps is one where 
Her nature was, uh, was susceptible to the appeal which the devil made. That's the emphasis of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 to 14. I mention that third because the women's lib don't like that one, see. They say that Paul made a mistake in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then the second thing we have is the original state of man. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to Genesis 2, verse 25. They say that Paul made a mistake in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. May I say to you, that apart from whatever your interpretation may be of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which speaks of the woman wearing a hat in the assembly, which is a hard problem, by the way, and which speaks of a woman in 1 Timothy chapter 2, don't, don't try to get around it by saying that's a cultural thing or that Paul made a mistake. Because then you end up by saying, well, Paul and Jesus had to say about marital fidelity was a cultural thing and doesn't make any difference today. See, That's the kind of sword that cuts both ways. So anyway, the devil approached Eve. Now, the fourth thing I want to look at, and that is the temptation itself. The temptation itself. The devil has a modus operandi in approaching Eve, devil has a method in seducing Eve. And may I suggest to you, as that outline suggests, there are four things. First of all, a goal. Second, an alert. Third, an obstacle. And fourth, a modus operandi, a method. Now, let's look at these four. I hope you'll look at your outline with me. First of all, he has an objective, a goal. The big phrase today is MBO. MBO. I got to the accrediting association, and they're all talking about MBO. I get literature that crosses my desk every day. MBO. You know what MBO is. Management by objective. That's the big thing in business and in schools today. MBO. Well, this is SBO. Seduction by objective. And the devil had an objective in mind. He had a goal in mind when he came to Eve. The devil has clear-cut goals. It would be well if we defined our goals as carefully as does the devil. And the devil had a clear goal in mind. Now, what was that goal? To get Adam and Eve to disobey God. Very simple. That was the goal. He had disobeyed God. Now, the devil wanted to get Adam and Eve to disobey God. That was his goal, and everything he did was aimed toward achieving that goal, and that is to get Adam and Eve to disobey God. What is the essence of sin? Disobedience. Disobedience. What is the essence of sin? Disobedience. The essence of sin is not selfishness. Selfishness is sin, but sin is not selfishness. Selfishness is sin, but sin is not selfishness. I mean by that that although selfishness is one form of sin, sin is not comprised only of selfishness. You will never have an adequate definition of God. Now, I, I hope you listen carefully. You will never have an adequate definition of God until you relate it to God's, uh, God's uh, will or God's law. All the definitions of sin are related to God's law. What is sin? Well, the Greek has seven or eight words for sin, the Greek New Testament. One is, uh, one is uh, 
the word from which we get uh, homardiology, homartanal. And homartanal means, uh, it was often used in New Testament days. A man was an archer. Most boys grew up to be archers. A man was an archer. There was the target. He pulled on the bow and shot, but it missed the mark. That's homartanal. The noun is homartia. The doctrine of sin is homardiology. Or a man might cross over and get into another man's field. You know you go out hunting sometime and you see that sign that says no what? Trespassing. That's the Greek word parabino. Don't trespass. And sin is trespassing. Getting over God's law or falling short of God's law. Another one is hysterio, from which we get the word hysteria and hysterectomy, which means to come short. Another one is uh, a word from which we get this uh, disease of the curvature of the spine, scoliosis. It's translated by the word untoward. Now, I read that for 20 years and never understood what that was. Peter says, save yourself from this untoward generation. And I never stopped to figure out what is an untoward generation. Well, the word untoward means crooked. It's scoliosis, crooked. I should be straight by the law of God, but I'm crooked. Another word is, uh, is the word uh, death, death. Uh, that's the word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, forgive us our debts. O what do I owe God? I owe God all my love and all my worship, and I didn't pay him. I'm a spiritual freeloader. I didn't pay God, see? And therefore, sin is a death. Now, all these, when you look here, all these have, a con have within them the idea that there's a standard, an absolute standard, and I fail to measure up. And sin is a violation of the law of God. It's a transgression of God's law. And what the devil wanted to get Adam and Eve to do was to disobey God's law, God's word. Second, Second, the alertment. The alertment. Now, the devil knew that he couldn't come to Adam and Eve and say to Eve, come on, disobey God. See, he knew that. If he had said, come on, let's disobey God, she would have run from him. So he put out some bait. He put out an alertment. What is that alertment? Well, look, will you please, at verse 5. There's the alertment. He says, God does know that in the day you eat thereof, if you eat, then your eyes shall be what? And you shall be, be like God as God, knowing good and evil. There's the alertment. And the, and the key phrase there is that phrase, be like God. Now, what do you mean? You will be like God. Well, I think what he meant by that is that is that God is autonomous. God is autonomous. What is autonomous? You know what that, that you're going to get after the class is over, you're going to get in your car and drive home. What is that car called? Automobile. If you can put yourself to sleep, you hypnotize yourself, that's called what? Auto-hypnosis. Auto means self. That N-O-M-O-S means law. The Greek word for law is nomos. And 
Autonomous, autonomous means there's no law above me. I'm autonomous. I'm subject to no law. Now, what is God? God is autonomous. There's no law above God. God's nature is his only law. There's no law above God. He's autonomous. Autonomous. Not subject to any law, but to himself. Now, what did, what did, um, what did the devil offer to Adam and Eve? I hope you'll listen, because this is what's been going on in our campuses for the last 15 years. This is the root of a lot of problems we have in America today. The desire to be autonomous, subject to no law, whether it's parental law or civil law or spiritual law, moral law. What we have, ha what has happened in America the last 15 years goes right back to this thing here. The desire to be autonomous, not subject to any law, whether it's parental or civil or church or whatever it may be, or spiritual law. So God is autonomous, not subject to any law. The devil came to Adam and Eve and said, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God in what respect? Autonomous, subject to no law, no longer on the authority of God. You'll be autonomous just like God is. Now, that's a pretty good attraction, isn't it? You know, a lot of kids like that, a lot of boys like that, until they come to a place where they have to start paying the bill. See? And then that cures it pretty fast. And we come into life, we get into life, we find that nobody is autonomous. They were all subject to someone else. And surely we're subject to the moral uh, demands, the moral demands and the moral standards of God. But that was the, that was the allurement. No absolutes. We see it today in many forms. No absolutes. No absolutes. Ethical relativity. I had a man several years ago at a state university. I was taking a course in history. First day it came in. He said... Uh, I'm an atheist, and moreover, I'm an ethical relativist. An ethical relativist. Does anybody want me to explain that? He was waiting for several people to say yes. To his chagrin, nobody said yes. See, <laughs> he was really disappointed. And I don't believe in getting arguments. Uh, ethical, ethical, any sort of relativity is self-defeating. Ethical relativity means that if Monogamy is right in one culture. Polygamy might be right in another culture. Ethical relativity. Everything's relative. See? If fidelity is right in one culture, it may not be right in another culture. See? Infidelity may be right in another culture. That's ethical relativity. Now, we've got it translated over to something new in the last 12, 15 years. And we've had five or six... Um, um, uh, religious leaders who have been uh, much enamored by this. And it's called situational ethics. And it's dominated a lot of thinking on campuses and even in seminaries today. You'll probably find it propagated in seminaries today more than, in, than on some university campuses. What is situational ethics? Will you look here? Situational ethics says that um, I can 
Never tell what's right or wrong. Here's a concrete situation. I could never stand outside, let this platform represent a concrete situation. I could never say what's absolutely right or wrong until I get into the situation itself. That's why it's called situational ethics, and say whether it's right or wrong. 99 times out of 100, 99 times out of 100, Mr. Joseph Fletcher will tell us, for example, 99 times out of 100, uh, marital infidelity, adultery, adultery is wrong, 99 times out of 100. But I can't say that on the outside. It may be that I'll get into such a situation where one case out of 100, one case out of 1,000, uh, adultery will be right. The, the situation will dictate it. There are no moral absolutes. Now, you know, uh, the amusing thing is Fletcher thought he had come up with something new. The average natural man had been operating on that thesis for, you know, hundreds of years. He was just looking for a good religious excuse see, to get involved in that sort of thing, and he bought it, and it became popular. Situational ethics, it's still with us today. And our young people get bombarded with it, and the tragic thing is they get bombarded in it, with it sometimes in seminaries which teach there are no absolute situational ethics, or disobedience to the state, or disobedience at home, see, uh, can be dictated by the situation. Not at all. Not at all. Unless, of course, in Acts chapter 5, it asks us to violate a clear command of the Word of God. Number three, the alert. You'll be like God. Number three, the obstacle. Before... Uh, the devil could get Adam, uh, could get Eve to eat. There was an obstacle. Now, you know what that obstacle is? God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Now, that's what the devil's got to get over. What is, his, what is his goal? To get Eve to do what? What is the bait, secondly, that he gives to her? You'll be like autonomous. But there's an obstacle. God said, you'll die. That's the obstacle. So how is he going to get around it? So common today. He's going to get around it by denying the veracity of God's Word. See? He's going to get around it by, uh, by creating in the mind of Eve doubt and unbelief regarding the veracity of God's Word. And that's number four, the modus operandi. How will the devil remove this obstacle? By creating doubt in the mind of Eve. Now, let's look at three steps that he took, Genesis 3. Three steps. Verse 1, he takes three steps. Getting Eve to sin. Three steps. And um, there's a, you have to, uh, in, the, in the wrong sense of the term, admire the way he moves. Three steps. First of all, he sows it out. And she listens. And she enters into dialogue. Secondly, after he's got her swinging her way, his way, after he's got that doubt in her mind and she's thinking about it and she's, uh, uh, she's bought the bait and thinking about it, he moves, secondly, to an outright denial. You will not die. He knows, he knows that that's not going to be enough, however, that denial. So he moves to a third step. He impugns he impugns the motives of God. 
He impugns the motives of God, said that God gave that command for unworthy motives. And that's what I call a distortion. That's in verse 5. This is in verse 1, this is in verse 4, and this is in verse 5. And when he gets all through with this, what does she do? She eats. She disobeys God. And he's achieved his goal, see? And I dare say this is what he does whenever he tempts us into sin. Sows it out, uh, creates unbelief in God's word in our hearts and minds denial, and distorts in our minds the goodness and character of God. Now let's look at those three things very quickly. Number one, he sows it out. Verse chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto him, Yea, has God really said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You notice how tricky that is? Look at that with me, will you please? He says, Yea, has God said, Has God really said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see the cast in which he's put that thing? You know the old question, have you stopped beating your wife? You've heard that. That's the kind of question you can't win for losing. <laughs> and most of the questions your wives ask you, those kind of questions, see. You can't win for losing. That's what he did in this one. Did, <laughs> has God really said you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? Has God really said you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? See, if she said, um, if she said, uh, he see, he's getting her in a dilemma here. He's trapped her off base in the dilemma if she listens to it. Has God really said? Either she's going to doubt that God ever said it, or she's going to doubt the goodness of God. Has God really said, don't eat of all the fruit? Why, if he said that, that's restrictive. God can't be good in saying that. Surely a good God wouldn't say that. That can't be true because that would deny the goodness of God. God hasn't really said that, see? So he's got her over in that leg, but if she swings over this way, has God really said? Then she's going to have to deny that God ever said it. He's got her. He wants to do, what he wants to do is to get her on the horns of this dilemma. Either you're going to have to deny that God ever said it, or you're going to have to deny the goodness of God. Now, do you know he's overlooked a basic premise? What's the basic premise which he has overlooked um, and which she overlooked? We listen. The basic premise in which he operates is that all restrictions are evil. That's his basic premise. So if he's put this restriction, he can't be altogether good or he never really said it in the first place. He's got it. That's the horde's of dilemma. And instead of challenging that basic premise, she, she tried to get into dialogue with him. Now, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Eve responds. The woman said unto the servant, We meet of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, you know she made two mistakes here. Two mistakes. Obviously, verse 3 she misquoted what God said, didn't she? What did God not say? Yeah, he hadn't said don't touch it, did he? So she misquoted the word of God. 
But she did something else that was a, uh, a much more fatal mistake, if you can speak of a mistake being much more fatal. It's like saying that one man is more dead than another. Well, this is a fatal mistake, and there are two of them. One is she misquoted. But you know the second thing she did? She got involved in a dialogue with Satan. See? And I simply don't believe in that. She got involved in dialogue. That, and the assumption of a dialogue is that I've, I've got something good to share with you, and you've got something good to share with me, and we'll put them both together. And she got involved in a dialogue with the devil, and she lost out. She made a fatal mistake there. So the devil was now ready to administer the knockout punch. He moved on the second thing. Verse 4. Will you look at me at verse 4? Having sowed the doubt in her mind and having gotten her to think his way, he moves to the second step. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not, you won't die. The, 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 the original is much more emphatic than the King James. You will not surely die. Sounds like perhaps you won't die. But what he says is much more dogmatic. You won't die. What did God say? You will die. What does the devil say? You won't die. What does God say? There's only one way of salvation. What does the devil say? Many roads to God. As I read when I first came to town in an editorial by the editor of the Memphis Presbyterian. God is a mountain, and there are many roads to the top of the mountain, so there are many roads to God. One may be called Buddhism, one may be called Mohammedism, one may be called Christianity. What does the Bible say? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. What does Acts 4, 12, 20, 12 say? Neither is there salvation in any other. What does God say? What does God say? The wages of sin is? What does the devil say? You can play with sin and get away with it. What does God say? There is eternal punishment. What does the devil say? A God of love would not send a man to hell. See? An open denial of God's veracity. Now we look here. What's the difference between verse 1 and verse 3? Four. Verse 1 the devil, the devil questioned whether God had ever said that. In verse 4, he questions the veracity of God. In verse 1, he questions whether God ever said that thing. Yes, God really said. In verse 4, he assumes that God said it, but what God said was not the truth but a what? A lie. He questioned the veracity of God. Now the third thing, third thing, third thing. First, the doubt, second, the denial, and now the third thing that he, uh, that he moves on is a distortion, a distortion of God's character. He says in verse 5, For God knows that the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And by the way, in verse 5, the word for God is singular, and it ought to be with a capital G. He doesn't say you'll be like God. He said, you'll be like God. Now, what's the point that he's making here? Will you look up here? What he's saying here is God, he's impugning the motives of God here. What he's saying is that um, God is jealous and selfish. God doesn't really love you. You thought that God gave you that 
restriction for your own welfare. You thought that God loved you, and because he loved you, he placed that restriction upon you. But you're wrong. If God really loved you, he wouldn't have placed that restriction upon you. The reason God said to you, don't eat the fruit of the tree, is simply this. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, then your eyes will be opened and you'll be like what? God. You'll share in his glory. You'll be like God in what sense? Autonomous. You'll be like God, autonomous, subject to no law, subject to no God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the reason God laid that restriction upon you is because he doesn't want you to share in what he has. He's jealous and envious. Now, that's very modern. Let me, let me put it. I read this and hear it all the time. I don't read it like this. I hear it in another form, but I read it in books and hear it. It's like a syllogism, and you ought to be aware of it. The, you know a syllogism has a major premise and a minor premise and a conclusion. The major premise is restrictions. Restrictions are not good. Restrictions are not good. Minor premise, God's plan has a restriction. Therefore, God's plan is what? Not good. See? Now, restrictions are not good. What did, what's the restriction, uh, what's the restriction in Eve's case? What was the restriction in Eve's case? Do you know where that has to be attacked? It won't do any good to attack the conclusion. You know, in a syllogism, you attack either the minor premise or the major premise. Now, which of the major, if, if the conclusion is, is not true, if the conclusion is wrong, then there's something wrong in the major premise, or there's something wrong in the minor premise. Now, where is it? Something wrong in the minor premise? Well, the Ten Commandments would indicate that. God's plan has a restriction. What are they? Do not steal. That's a restriction. Do not commit adultery. That's a restriction. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. That's a restriction. Where is the fault in here? And this is where it's got to be attacked. That my major premise, that restrictions are not good. So we go to the, the psychiatrist, and he tells us, you've got a sexual hang-up. You believe that adultery is wrong. You were taught that from a childhood, and therefore you can't do it with ease. You have, carry a heavy load of conscience about it. Your trouble is not the standard. Your trouble is, is not the standard. Your trouble is that you are carrying around the idea that that standard is right. And it's not true. Restrictions are not healthy. Restrictions are not healthy. They're not good for you to be under restrictions, see? And if God's plan has restrictions, then God's plan is not good. Now, what can you, what can you put in there for restrictions? 
Restrictions are not good. What could you put in there? What could you put in there? Well, the boy would put, what would he put in there? Submission to his father? Would that be a restriction? What would be a wife? Submission to her husband? That's a restriction. See? Don't, uh, don't commit adultery. That's a restriction. Restrictions. Restrictions are not good. That's where the thing has to be attached. Matter of fact, restrictions are good. You've got restrictions. How many of you put your hand in the fire? See? You don't. Now, you may put it on a hot iron, but you do that accidentally. You follow some restrictions, and there's some moral restrictions written into the fiber of this universe, and if I violate them, then I'll get burned. And that has to be attacked on that major premise. Whether it's rule, see, every once in a while I hear this around school. Mid-South Bible College has some rules. That's right. That's right. Because we have to believe that restrictions don't injure a person. The right restrictions don't injure them. And I remind them that the first command of God in the Bible was a negative. A negative. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Restrictions are not unhealthy. Restrictions are often good. And where that has to be attacked is at the major premise. Now, we're going to have to stop at this point. I thought we'd get a little further, but we didn't. Let me close by pointing out one thing. Will you look up here? Close by saying one thing. You shall be like God. You shall be like God. What do you think went across the mind of Eve when the devil came with that? You'll be like God. Do you think that'd be a good thing? What do you think? Do you think it'd be... Do you think Eve said to herself, my husband, Adam would like me to be more like God. God would like me to be more like himself. And surely, I want to be more like God. You think that's a good objective? What do you think? Yes? Yes. But in achieving that objective, are you listening? In achieving that objective, she disobeyed a clear command of the Word of God. And there's a principle of the Bible that you can't violate, and it's simply this. It's never right to do wrong to do right, see? It's never right to do wrong to do right. To do right, to be like God, ah, yes. But to violate the command of God, no. When Samuel came to Saul... God said to Saul, kill all the sheep. Exterminate all the king and his family. And don't save any of the sheep. And Samuel came to Saul, have you obeyed it? And Saul very piously, I've obeyed all that God has said. And the words no sooner got out of his mouth than bah, bah. You know that, that sheep. And Samuel said to Saul, what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears? And Saul, who was great in blaming other people. See, David was great because he admitted and said, I'm the man. Saul was always looking around for somebody else to blame. And he said, the people, the people made me. The people made me. Moreover, he said to Samuel, I saved the best sheep to offer to God. 
Do you think it's good to offer a sacrifice to God? Yes. But he disobeyed God's will, see? And God laid down one of the principal verses of the Bible, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Never right, you wrong who right. Young girl comes to me, see? She says to me, or one of the faculty, I plan to get married. And we talk with her and ask her eventually a question. Uh, what about this young fellow? Is he a Christian? Is he genuinely born again? And, you know, there's a little pause there. And she says, he goes to church with me every Sunday morning, Sunday night. Well, that's wonderful, but that's not the question, see. Is he a born-again Christian? Does he really know the Lord? And she said, well, he's been a perfect gentleman. He's never laid his hand on me. Well, that is very credible. That's good. But that's not the answer to the question. See? He promised to go with me. That's not... Well, I'll tell you, she said. I made it up. I made a vow with God that after we are married, I will win him to the Lord. May I ask you a question? Is it a good thing? Now, think with me. Is it a good thing to win a man to Christ? Is it? But it's never right to do wrong. Do right, see? The end never justifies the means. And the temptation that the devil put in the way of Eve is the most common temptation today. It's never right to do wrong. Do right. All right, let me make about three announcements.